This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Ben Keyes is a professor of real estate and professor of finance at the Wharton School. Let's talk about this dynamic here because the, the housing market has been just so incredible to watch over the last year and a half uh, with how prices have risen. Uh, you know, asking prices end up be, being, you know, lowball offers at this point. It's very a unique dynamic we've been seeing playing out. And so the question is, is this going to continue? Could there be some trouble afoot here? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's the question that's on everyone's mind. And, you know, over the summer, we, we crossed a threshold, um, which is uh, real house prices are now higher um, than they were at the peak uh, of the housing bubble in 2005, 2006. So at the national level, um, adjusted for inflation, we are now back above um, above those thresholds. And, you know, adjusting for inflation is important. I was reading this morning that, uh, you know, a $200,000 house um, back in 2000, uh, would now cost about $300,000 just because of the power of compound inflation over that time period. So it's important to, to put things into uh, into real dollars when making these comparisons between uh, between different time periods. But it is it is notable that we are now back above where we were um, in those in those boom years, and I think that's partly why we're hearing people starting to wonder, um, you know, is this a bubble, and should we expect um, the air to come out of it? Um, in the way that it did last time. And I, I come down very strongly against that view. I don't think that that's likely that we're going to see um, a bubble burst in the way that we saw it in 2008, 2009, and 2010. So then what does that mean, do you think, for the market looking over the next couple of years? Are, are we still going to see, uh, you know, asking prices, you know, people are going to be putting in more money than the asking price? Are we going to continue to see because of the, the low supply out there, uh, homes not being on the market for very long. Yeah, and I think you, you touched on a bunch of the themes that are going to persist unless there's a big disruption to the economy. I think you know, one of the key differences is that in that 2000s boom, you know, housing was really driving the boom. It was kind of the engine of, of economic growth there for a few years. And so we had um, a big construction boom, um, and there was a lot of, um, of sort of innovative financing um, and questionable financing for, for homes in terms of weak underwriting standards, low or no documentation loans, loans with extreme teaser rates or negatively amortizing construction. And so, um, so all of those features are absent from, from the current landscape. And so I, I take a step back and I look at supply and demand. And on the supply side, there's just been a real shortage of building over these last 10 years. I think there was a, a bit of a a hangover um, coming out of that 2000s boom and bust, and uh, and we're sort of underbuilt in a lot of the cities where uh, where there's a lot of demand for uh, for jobs, where there's demand for for housing, and in terms of dealing with that problem, we're seeing now very high costs. We're seeing high costs in you know it was in lumber, um, we see it in labor costs, we see it in a lot of other material backlogs. So it's costly to build right now, and there are big barriers to build in a lot of these cities. And so if we think about the most desirable communities, many of them have um, big zoning restrictions that are going to make it difficult to build densely. Um, they're going to have minimum lot sizes. They're going to make it hard to add to that supply in a, in a quick and flexible way. And so you know, housing, unlike almost any other product, when prices go up, um, we just don't see the building respond in the same way. But we do see building respond with a lag, and I do think in some markets – we're going to see some building picking up 
in the coming months, um, especially in those markets where it's easier to build. And so parts of Florida, parts of Texas, um, you know, the, the stories are that the shovels are in the ground and that there is quite a bit of building that's um, responding to this COVID um, increased demand for, um, for some of these locations. That, that's interesting because I, I, I was wondering whether or not we would, we would see a change on the building side of it because the dynamics, when you hear the reporting, uh, you know, uh, from uh, home builders, uh, their confidence numbers, it still seems like they have hesitancy now. And obviously you went through a lot of the dynamics that were in play. They still have a lot of hesitancy about, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting a lot of, of product forward, putting a lot of investment into um, employment, et cetera, because of all of these dynamics at play here. Well, it's a tricky thing to forecast. I mean, if you're if you're getting prepared to build a house and you're pulling the, you know, you're buying land or you're you're getting permits, you know, this is 18 to, to 36 months um, in terms of of your lead time, uh, and sometimes longer if you're doing um, a big and complicated development, especially in a in a city where construction is harder to do, um, as opposed to you know throwing up a sub development on the outskirts of town. And so, I think all of these things lead to hesitancy. And I think the other piece to this is just the, the confidence in will the demand still be there? So is the demand a, a function of, of COVID that people are fleeing, you know, the densest locations and trying to get a bit more space for their families, or is this a more permanent shift? And so I think some of the uncertainties around working from home and some of the uncertainties around the, the strength of the economy more generally are going to be contributing to home builders' hesitancy to um, invest heavily. And, and that said, you know, I think the, the sort of, the demand that we've seen recently has been quite strong and steady, and it's coming from really two main groups. I mean, so one is um, is baby boomers um, who have a lot of the country's wealth um, and who are you know responding to the COVID crisis in many cases by retiring. And so there's been a big wave of retirements of the you know over 55 crowd, and they're looking to um, buy second homes or buy retirement homes or or a blend of the two. And then you have the you know the the uh, the millennials who are really aging into um, their peak home buying years, and they've experienced a very rough economy in the early stages of their careers and are now um, establishing themselves. And especially those um, who have careers that weren't disrupted by COVID, they're, they're doing quite well. They've been able to save up for a down payment. And so you combine those demographic forces, and I think the demographics are really lined up to, to have a pretty strong housing market over the next few years, again, sort of barring a big, uh, a big macroeconomic disruption. It seems like, though, Ben, the building that is going on it, are the larger uh, size properties, uh, you know, at least four bedroom houses, at least two and a half baths. You know, the homes here in the Philadelphia suburbs that would probably be going for, you know, 750 to 800,000 in other markets, probably, you know, thinking of the south, probably like, you know, 300 to 400,000 that the builders themselves are thinking about the bigger type of property when they're, when they're, uh, when they're building at this point. Yeah. And this is, you know, consistent with a trend that's, that's been going for about 50 years now in the U S um, with the growth of suburbanization is that, you know, household sizes have shrunk. So families are having fewer kids, uh, but at the same time, the square footage of new building has gone up and up and up. And so, you know, this is totally consistent with that pattern. And, and some of that is just a function of our tastes, that our, our tastes have shifted for um, for these more spacious uh, houses. You know, people are, aren't used to sharing 
um, bedrooms with their siblings when they're growing up, things like that. Um, and then some of it is, is if you just think about the, the sort of um, cost-benefit trade-off from a builder standpoint, that you know, the value that they can generate from a high-end, uh, a, a high-end single-family home, um, given the constraints on building, um, may be their best bet. And so, you know, if you're thinking about the, the challenges here to affordability, it's just obvious, right? So if, if the new construction that's coming in is at the top of the distribution, um, then how are uh, lower-income families going to enter the housing market with, uh, with a starter home? And that's a real challenge. And so, you know, economists have studied this for a long time, and the, the terminology is filtering. So houses sort of filter down the, um, down the income ladder as they age, and the sort of amenities that are expect, expected in a new house might not be there in an older house. Um, but the pace of that filtering is just far too slow. And so you, know, you have this issue where you're just not producing new housing for, um, for the people who are hoping to enter into uh, home ownership for the first time. Right, and it makes me think that that like you're going to see uh, low to middle un- income families really kind of locked in to existing home properties uh, more so than being able to buy the new property. Yeah, and it, and it also points to the rise of the single family rental market. Right, that you have people who are on the margin now between own, owning and renting, and for a lot of people, the you know the price of housing has has gone way up. Um, the the bar to qualify for a mortgage has, has stayed very high in terms of, of the underwriting standards. And we've seen the growth of this, this industry, of the single-family rental industry, where you know, firms have bought um, quite a few properties in, in sub, suburbs and subdivisions and are now offering those for rent. And so those are an alternative approach to get into some of those school districts, into some of those safe neighborhoods. And, and so I think you, you now have a, another party that's, a, that's an important player in this space. And there's still relatively small across the country, but in some sub-markets, they, they've taken up a, a pretty large market share. And so I, I think all of these things point to sort of challenges for the average home buyer that's trying to get uh, get their foot in the door to home ownership. What would be a potential concern for you about the state of the housing market at this point? Yeah, there are a few things to keep a close eye on. And the obvious one is, is where mortgage rates are, are headed. And I think we've seen the 10-year Treasury rate tick up in, in the last couple of months um, and, you know, still at nearly historical low levels. Uh, mortgage rates are still hovering around 3% for a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. And I think, you know, it, it, with rates in that range, it means that for the monthly sort of debt service cost of principal and interest, um, those costs are remaining quite low. And so even in a high price environment, a lot of families are able to afford the monthly payments. And so um, so I think keeping a close eye on mortgage rates and where mortgage rates are heading, I think if there were to be a, a big disruption to um, to the to rates, you know, whether that's an unforced error on the part of uh, fiscal policy refusing to uh, you know, to default on <laughs> deciding to default on our country's debts, uh, whether that's an unforced error of monetary policy of of tightening too quickly, um, yeah. even when the economy is you know has many pockets of of deep struggle, we're still you know many millions of jobs below where we were at the beginning of of COVID. Um, you know, all of those things could lead to a spike in in rates, um, and that would be a, a potentially disruptive force um, for sure. I, I think the other is. Just the broader macro economy and whether uh, whether home buyers are, are out there with stable jobs um, and down payments saved up, and they are, you know, looking to to move up in terms of you know, what they can bear from from their housing costs. 
So I, I wanted to ask you about the, the jobs component that you alluded to a moment ago and how much of that do you think has had an impact on the housing sector over the last 19 months? And, you know, assuming we get these jobs back into the mix over the next year, uh, you know, the potential benefit it could be for the housing sector. Yeah, I mean, the, the other, the other, the other, I think one of the reasons why there's so much uncertainty in the housing market right now is that in some senses it, it could go in either direction. So uh, on the one hand, you know, with prices at these uh, back to these, you know, all-time highs in terms of real terms, everyone thinks, well, what goes up must come down. And so the market has to turn back the other way. Um, and, you know, for some of the reasons that I've alluded to, I, I think that's fairly unlikely that we're going to see a big crash. I think that's partly because lending standards have stayed in a reasonable range of, of discipline. I, I think that it's just not that easy to get a mortgage. And so if you are able to qualify, then you can get great terms and great rates. But, um, you know, you still need to document your income and assets. You still need a very good credit score. Um, and you still need, uh, you know, at least something of a down payment, um, usually on the order of a 5% down payment. So a 20% down payment is kind of a myth. Um, most people are not putting down 20%. But you could imagine that the market goes the other way. It, it heats up even further, and it could heat up w- with a few forces um, that you described in terms of uh, in terms of the economy continuing to pick up and, and more, um, uh, you know, lower unemployment, more people entering the labor force. It, it could pick up with uh, with a relaxation of lending standards, and so you might see uh, a push to um, make housing access more affordable, and that could come through. Um, government programs, you could imagine a, a rise of public um, private label securitization popping up again um, as uh, as there's more interest in some of these affordability um, concerns for, for borrowers. And then I think you also have foreign buyers. And so foreign buyers have really been on the sidelines yeah. during COVID. They haven't been able to travel to the U.S. in the way that they were in you know, 2016, 17, and 18. And um, and they have sort of exited the market, and you know there are some uh, some markets like Miami and um, and and New York City where the high end condo uh, market has definitely been inf- uh, affected by um, COVID disruption of, of foreign access, and so there are some submarkets where you know a return to normalcy might mean a, a big pop in in foreign buyers as well, and so you know there there are pressures that that are out there on the upside as well, and so it's not just a a what goes up must come down kind of story for the housing market right now. Do you do you expect that the rental side will continue to have a a significant impact on the home purchase side like it has especially in the last couple of years families just deciding that you know especially older families deciding you know what at at, at a certain point the kids are out of the house I just want to move to a rental in a city or wherever it might be and they don't want to have to have the the, the property issues anymore. Yeah, so having the rental market um, as a close substitute and and having different types uh, of you know families looking in those different markets, I think the the rental space you know rents have really gone up sharply in uh, in these last couple of years and um, you know the, they've really outpaced inflation for for basically ten years straight in, in terms of looking at rents and so as, as we're thinking about these questions about is infl- you know this is this uptick in inflation temporary or is it permanent. The, the rental component of inflation is likely to go up. And, you know, my view is that it, the inflation picture is is largely a temporary one, but that the rental piece to that feels quite permanent. I think that there is, yeah. again, just the shortage of um, of housing in, uh, in the markets where there's the most demand. And so, you know, the places that are adding the most jobs are just not building enough housing 
for all of those workers. And I, and I think that that is going to lead to higher rental costs. And so you know, one of the things that could uh, could free up some of the of the housing ladder um, would be a, a sort of large scale downsizing on the part of of the baby boomers and, and older uh, generations that are that are now, you know, don't have kids in the house. Um, but they're going to need uh, places to move to, and so they need to find, um, you know, neighborhoods and um, and 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 apartment buildings that are that are accessible, that have the amenities that they're going to need um, as they kind of age in, into those units. And I think there's a scarcity there as well. So all of these sort of points to the need for more building um, for all these different demographic needs that we have. Yeah. All right. Great to have you, Ben. Thanks very much for a few moments. All the best. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dan. Great to talk to you. You got it. Ben Keyes, a professor of real estate and professor of finance at the Wharton School. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.